Welcome to the first episode of the Hacking Consciousness podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. And in this podcast, we're going to explore the enigma that is human consciousness, as well as practical tools to understand it and to unlock its creativity, its potential, its capacity for happiness and contentment through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Before I introduce my first guest, I want to give some background on why I'm starting this podcast and who I imagine to be the intended audience. I sense that there are a series of conversations happening within and to some extent across different communities around this topic of exploring consciousness. Clearly, there's a lot of interest in the tech community in Silicon Valley and beyond around exploring consciousness. The tech industry has, as always, been drawing heavily on modern science. One big area of particular interest to this show will be the mapping of the human brain that's been happening in modern neuroscience and the way that those in tech are using this knowledge to reverse engineer the brain to develop artificial intelligence. So we'll explore the topic of what is intelligence, what is happening in AI, what is the brain, and how is that distinct from consciousness? Because it's crucial that we not equate those two. Uh, I do not make the assumption that the brain equals consciousness. In fact, I don't believe it does. Um, There's also a clear resurgence of research around psychedelics, both plant-based like ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms, as well as synthetic forms of these plants, in addition to LSD. There's growing appreciation for the potential of these tools to explore consciousness, both in larger doses and in microdoses, as a kind of creativity hack. We're now starting to see scientific research both validate the benefits of psychedelics for a number of areas, from microdosing for problem solving and creativity, as well as in uh, psychotherapy, where we're seeing a lot of benefits in terms of how it's able to treat mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, especially with people with terminal illnesses, PTSD, and more. There's also clearly growing interests in tech and across other industries and society in general in yoga and meditation, the benefits of which are also being increasingly validated by scientific research. One example of this would be the growing popularity of the Wisdom 2.0 conference, which I'm looking forward to attending for the first time this coming February in San Francisco. And this show is also for those in the yoga and meditation world, which is mainly where I'm coming from, who want to merge the best of what we've inherited from great civilizations of the past with the progress of modern science and technology. In this sense, I want to emphasize that this is not a new conversation, but the latest now globalized iteration of a conversation that's been happening for thousands of years. My personal yoga and meditation practice has made me self-aware that what I thought I understood as the self is largely a construct and that consciousness really is far more mysterious than most of us realize. The more that I study some of the great meditation adepts, mainly from India, the more that I come to see them as people who were for their own time and in their own right, really scientists, rationalists, technicians. They were designers who were single-pointedly focused on hacking one of the great mysteries of life, one that is still elusive to modern science, which is the enigma of human consciousness. And towards this end, these sages produce some of the most beautiful, creative, potent tools for understanding the self and how we experience the world in a way that I think are still valuable to humans today. So in this podcast, I want to explore these hacks and I want to unpack some of these esoteric maps in a way that makes them more accessible for people, particularly for those of us who grew up in the West and may have qualms about organized religion. 
towards this end, I hope to keep pushing forward a conversation that someone like Sam Harris has been promoting in his book, Waking Up, Spirituality Without Religion, and in his podcast called Waking Up, of which I'm a big fan. The only amendment and perhaps different in emphasis with Sam's very scientific approach is that I think there is an important role that myth and metaphor has to play in these processes. And that's in part why I've come to understand meditation as a design experience. Exploring consciousness is a sort of creative endeavor that has to involve both sides of the brain, not only the analytical, logical mind towards which some of us, myself included, are inclined, but it also has to involve an appreciation for the subtle and inseparable ways in which the mind and the body are interconnected. So the goal of this podcast is to really speak to this common interest of exploring consciousness in a way that bridges the gaps between these communities, sometimes have different ways of uh, approaching these problems and certainly have different languages. They are all topics of great interest to me and have been so for a long time. For the past seven years, I've studied yoga and meditation in Eastern religions, first mainly Buddhism and now a tantric form of Hinduism that's popularly called Kashmir Shaivism or also non-dual Shaiva Tantra. I also enjoy studying comparative religions across other traditions, especially more esoteric schools. Yet I also have many qualms with organized religion, and there will be an emphasis on a rational and scientific approach in this podcast, even when tackling the most esoteric of topics. Moreover, psychedelics have always been a very powerful tool for me since really I was a young adult for the last 20 years. These substances precipitate an indescribably powerful paradigm-shattering experience of one's view of reality that is not something that I could possibly recommend to anyone else, certainly not without knowing them personally. I believe it is something towards which some people are drawn. I was totally drawn to the experience. It did not happen by accident. I sought it out, and I spent at least a year researching it before I ever attempted it, starting with reading Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. To say that it is not for everyone is both a truism and a gross understatement, but I will personally echo Steve Jobs in saying that doing psychedelics has been one of the most significant things that I've ever done in my entire life. They have fundamentally changed the way that I look at the world. I do believe they can confer great therapeutic and medicinal value for particular people and in certain circumstances. Scientific research has been validating this for some time, and we need more of it to understand what are its benefits, its risks, how it works on the brain. Finally, let's just acknowledge together Western society and other societies as well have deemed some of these topics taboo. Just as we claim to be for free speech, yet we erect a barrier around religion and demand that this deserves some sort of special exemption from rational scrutiny and critique, so people also think it should be taboo to talk about psychedelics. Even as we continue to allow people to legally consume alcohol and tobacco, both of which, uh, especially alcohol, are toxic and can kill you, um, psychedelics really do not, with all of its massive social and economic costs. And this is to say absolutely nothing of many other things that we allow, such as, say, the sugar industry, which is absolutely terrible. Um, my claim is very simple, which is that all points of view are welcome, provided that they be supported with evidence, and that we're able to critically evaluate and discuss the sources of that evidence. The whole fake news phenomenon is yet the latest piece of evidence that our education system is failing to teach people some 
extremely basic skills about critical thinking. So I want to conclude this intro with a thank you and acknowledgement to those who are pushing the boundaries on these kind of conversations. People like Sam Harris, uh, Sam Harris, Vincent Horn of the now defunct Buddhist Geeks podcast, and more recently, Paul Austin, founder of The Third Wave. And thank you to those of you who take the time to listen. I mentioned a few of the people who I imagine being in the intended audience, but really, this podcast is um, addressing a fundamental topic that I clearly affects all of us, uh, anyone who has to experience what is the human condition. And I thank you for your interest, and I hope you find this valuable, and I certainly welcome any constructive criticism as the podcast unfolds. And now, with that said, let me introduce my first guest. Adrian Cox is the founder and director of Yoga Element Studio in Bangkok, Thailand, a licensed NLP trainer and a yoga teacher for over 15 years. His teachings and his work with people draw upon an in-depth study and practice of yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, philosophy, mind, and linguistics. He is a licensed NLP trainer and coach, that is neuro-linguistic programming, and a certified clinical hypnotherapist. Adrian applies a keen understanding of language, state, and change processes to facilitate learning and change in an accelerated and generative way. He brings to his teachings a deep interest in people, change, healing, and personal development. And I'll conclude that official biography by saying that I can personally vouch for the high caliber of Adrian's teaching. And with that, I give you the first interview of the Hacking Consciousness podcast with Adrian Cox. Hey there. Adrian, how are you? I'm okay. Um, you're... You're there. I'm here. Hi, Adrian. <laughs> Just to uh, clarify for our listeners, the the host and the guest are both named Adrian. This is not <laughs> right. this is not Echo. I, I, I've always been fa- you know a fan of our name. I, I think did I send you the uh, the clip of uh, Rosemary's Baby and No, what's the well, connection? Oh, so well, Rosemary's Baby, which is a classic film by Roman Polanski. Um, it's discovered that uh, that the whole time that the Rosemary's baby is actually the is actually the child of the devil and her, and um, his name is Adrian. <laughs> That's so, fantastic. Yeah. So, and and given your uh, enthusiasm, I, I know a lot about you already. So, <laughs> well, I love it. Well, um, yeah, I didn't want anyone to think it was. Uh, some sort of vanity project, you know, having a, my first guest on the podcast by the same name, but it just happened to be a great coincidence. And I, I really wanted to have you on, uh, to be the first person on the podcast for, you know, a number of reasons. One of which is that, you know, this, what I'm really hoping to do in this podcast is to bridge kind of a gap between different communities who are, interested in a similar topic, you know, exploring the minds, um, and also in a way that's, we can tap more into creativity and learn how to be happier, more fulfilled people. But a lot of those communities have different languages. And I do think it's important when translating, especially a lot of the value that some of these older traditions have to do so in a way that's through the lens of science and rationalism and that's something that's important to me and I know it's very important to you as well so I thought that way that's why you'd be a great first guest to have on the show great thank you yeah it's uh, definitely a lining up of purpose for sure well why don't we start actually just by giving people a little sense of your background okay sure uh, well um, I started off uh, well, not started off, but my previous incarnation was working in um, in IT, and um, just was doing yoga out of curiosity. I didn't really have any particular. Um, I just I just took it like anybody else took it, um, 
And one day I remember a, my teacher at the time had a special workshop on the philosophy of yoga. And I remember her coming to a place where she was talking about the moral and ethical underpinnings to the practice and, and one in particular for, for um, I don't know what this says about me, but it, but, uh, it really captivated my attention and it was on the principle of telling the truth. And um, the way she had framed it was that telling the truth came before the other practices, which I thought was was a, a very powerful challenge uh, to, and it and really riveted my attention in. And so um, life went on, and at a certain place, I had uh, taken a uh, meditation retreat in Thailand. And during the retreat, somewhere around day 10 of um, all-day meditation, I had a vision. And I don't ordinarily... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily give credit to visions as a, as a you know solid epistemology, but in my case, it was the clearest thing that I had ever seen up to that point. And what it was was um, essentially that I was to follow the path and become a teacher. And I saw my studio, I saw my students kind of in a vision. And uh, following that, I was basically, I knew what I had to do. And I, I, I went back to New York, I quit my job, I enrolled at a teacher training. That finished in 1999. Uh, following that, I went to India, stayed in the Bihar School of Yoga. It's an, a very strict ashram. And then went to Nepal, stayed there for a while, lived with my teacher in Kathmandu. And then in around uh, year 2000, I moved to Bangkok, set up this yoga school, and we opened in 2001. Interestingly, as we were building, the, uh, the, the building that I had seen in my vision was the same building that I actually ended up moving into. How that happens, I don't know, but uh, there it is. And so here it is 17 years later, and I'm... I live, breathe, and sleep kind of uh, these practices about yoga and mind. That's really fascinating. I mean, can you, for someone who is a bit of a skeptic, you know, in terms of visions or just, you know, how the mind works, because it certainly can trick us, you know, um, what are your thoughts on, after having an experience like that, and I'm not sure if you've had any others that would reinforce this, but the power of the mind to, I don't know what we want to call it, whether it's manifested or to anticipate something like that. Did, has, has an experience like that or other ones challenged your sort of skepticism in any ways? Well, sure. I mean, there's, um, there's been times where I, you know, I was convinced of a certain, what um, direction to go only to find out that um, I was being impulsive and yeah I mean I'm filled with error was it was it <laughs> was it bet would it have been better or worse to you know stay in New York with a desk job I, I you know I don't know I'd probably be making more money but um, um, as far as that goes I don't have a clear answer as to what, you know, by what criteria can we measure as something worth changing one's life for. Um, Joseph Campbell famously said, you know, follow your bliss or follow where you light up in life. In other words, you move in the direction of the activities that you feel a, I guess, a, a God-given talent or, I don't know, how would you interpret that? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell, and I'm familiar with that quote. Um, I think what it touches on, and what some of your comments touch on, is the importance of intuition, which, yet again, is, is a bit of an elusive concept, but it's, it's perhaps mainly elusive to those people who are oriented, and I'm going to guess you're in this category, I certainly am, where those of us who intellectualize... <laughs> many yeah, things sure. when that's yeah, your default definitely. mode right. network 
then then intuition is seemingly elusive. I think there are many people who are naturally intuitive who don't find anything elusive about it. They find it to be the most natural of things. Right. Um, but yeah. but that is tricky to me. Is is like anything? You know, yoga is about balance. You know, Buddhism is about the middle path. I think there's a lot of wisdom in those approaches and how to discern when to use the wonderful tool that is the analytical mind and when to just let it go and trust that intuition, which is located, who knows where, I mean, now we're getting into issues of consciousness, but just the, we have this sense that we're living, you know, somewhere behind the eyes, <laughs> right? Especially those of us who are more intellectually oriented, but maybe just letting go of that and, and learning to trust somewhere closer to the heart. But, but how to do that is, certainly more art than science. Interestingly, like one of the sort of um, aspects that is considered in, in yoga philosophy, that uh, one of the aspects of the mind when it's considered to be in its higher expression, it does, they, they list that intuition manifests spontaneously. The way I, you know, I think from a very rational materialist point of view, perhaps intuition it could be could be data that is collected, you know, through a wide variety of means that has yet to arise to a conscious level and then, you know, is secreted into one's awareness in, in an indirect fashion, like through you know, through a, a physical signal or through a dream or just a feeling, right? Uh, those are those are valid representational systems uh, other than just internal dialogue, right? Yeah. Who knows, yeah. And it's, it's very interesting, of course, you know, you and I have the benefit of, I think there's so much we learn by living in another culture. Um, but even just for people who are active travelers, there's, travel is such a powerful form of education. It just allows you to really get insight into how culture and even language really biases our particular viewpoint of things. One thing I learned recently, which was fascinating from um, Christopher Wallace, I'm sure you know him from the yoga world, is that yeah. he, was, he was saying the definition of the word, I'm going to mess it up, it's either chitti or chitta, but it's often used to describe... Chitti, right, would be thoughts. But in Sanskrit, they actually don't have, it's the same word they use for heart and mind and for thoughts and feelings. Mm, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. says so much, right, that they see them as inseparable. <laughs> yeah, in Thai, it's the same. Uh, in Thai, the, the word for consciousness is uh, jit. So similar, so similar etymology, right? Oh, interesting. Heart, mind. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. Well, you know, let's let's start digging in a little bit to some of these tools, you know, with which, you know, to use some of the popular language of our time, right? People used to hack their consciousness. And that's one way I, I, I chose the title of the show this way. And because obviously, look, this is a really popular term right now. And that started in the tech community and people use it in other ways. But when I really have... The more I've studied, you know, a lot of these Eastern adepts, yogis, um, the Buddha, you know, Lao Tzu, uh, they really were, when you think about what they were doing, they were hacking consciousness. Um, and they present us with a very powerful set of tools. And I'd love to explore some of those with you and talk about what you see as the utility of those. So could we start with the most popular form of yoga that people think of in the West, which is asana, right? The physical practice. Um, and then we can go into pranayama and meditation. But what do you see as both the, the power, the, the potential of yoga um, in terms of a, a form of self-inquiry and self-improvement? And also then what are some of the limitations as well? As I understand consciousness i mean that's it's such a big term Huge. um that let's say to expand consciousness first and foremost because if this is the if this is the the domain which we're seeking 
as I understand it, to expand consciousness, at, at least it, we start to be able to see or sense patterns within ourselves. And by having a greater consciousness, we can observe more. And in observing more, then we have more choice. So the the, the general model, and I, I believe this, I, I learned this via Robert Anton Wilson, who I think was actually basing his uh, his thoughts off of uh, Timothy Leary. Something to the effect of that, you know, let's say that you have a conscious mind and you have an unconscious mind, and the unconscious mind is is uh, possibly much vaster and more expansive and connected to an, an, an eternal wisdom or eternal light and truth, whereas the conscious mind is very uh, limited and um, sense of self that ends up filtering out and deleting uh, a lot of information so that our senses basically feed us what it is that we already know to be true or believe to be true. So um, the general model, as I understand it, is that when we have the opportunities to, I don't know why there's a spatial metaphor here, but the, the opportunity to rise above or go meta to our waking state of consciousness and our general state of consciousness that we enter into a space which is more inclusive and that it holds more possibilities. And so when we step into that space and then come back down into our regular waking state of consciousness, it, our patterns become more obvious to us and in doing so then we have more choice. So um, firstly, when it, with yoga, as I, as I know it, is a technology, a subjective technology to to get to have both greater control over oneself at the level of body, mind, and emotions, and also greater awareness. So asana, first and foremost, uh, and a lot of people, I think what they don't realize is that there's much more to yoga than simply doing physical poses. Physical postures are just part of one aspect of yoga called hatha yoga. And that this practice is all, has always been uh, seen as a doorway or preparation for other practices such as breath control and meditation. Asana or physical practice was never conceived of as the as the final goal of uh, of yoga. And what it proposes to do is is it um, depending on you know the metaphors you wish to use. Let's just say that, in my view, I think what asana allows us to do is it allows us to um, recorrect patterns of the body that have been held in place as a kind of a composite of thought, emotion, energy, and habit. And when those things, they form a kind of a knot or gestalt which contains a you know a particular way of being so if i can start to unthread or unhook or undo patterns of the body in turn i get to undo patterns of thinking it's a great explanation as i understand it. yeah yeah um that's beautiful i like that it's a sort of there's i've come to appreciate yoga more recently as a process of refinement and there's a term um, that was taught to me by one of my teachers Vikulpa Samskara right it's the idea that yoga is the process of refining these Vikulpas these mental constructs and I believe there's something about the way that terms phrased in Sanskrit that actually implies is the process of refinement, Vikalpa Samskara, is literally means to break apart. So mm -hmm. before you put back together, and I thought that was uh -huh. very powerful. You know, it's sort of mm -hmm. like we have to decode something, 
before we understand its code, right? Before we put it back together again, right? We need to reverse engineer the brain before we create our artificial intelligence, right? Or any number <laughs> of analytical, yeah. Right. Or any number of analogies on down the line, but um, I thought that was pretty cool and insightful. Um, well, yeah, there's no question. Also, there's so much emphasis on, and way too much, I agree with you, on asana in the, in the yoga world. And we could, that could be a whole podcast unto itself. But let's talk a little bit about pranayama. And if you don't mind explaining what that is for listeners who don't know and sort of the power of that practice, what it's done for you and how it connects to meditation. Pranayama, uh, in well, when you study the, it, it's what it is is uh, breath control, and uh, or or you could also say energy control, and when you look back at the history of yoga overall, which goes let's say conservatively around a thousand years, um, you know, in terms of these practices, not the word but practices that you get many different approaches and many different systems. And all of the systems have a kind of a, a series of steps that people are using to achieve this exalted state of uh, super consciousness. And so some of the systems have moral and ethical codes, like what I mentioned before. Some of them have charity even. Some of them have... Uh, uh, asana practice, but not all of them do, which is interesting. But every single one, every single system of yoga has a practice around breath control. And whether that's holding the breath or whether that's uh, modulating the breath, some, uh, some, there's two traditions of pranayama. One is related to training people to be able to uh, use mantra for a longer period of time so that the exhales are much longer. Um, other traditions of pranayama are about um, e expanding and controlling and changing the patterns around breath. Now, it, one of the sort of truisms around breath is, is that it is something that is both automatic that at night you'll continue to sleep. You don't have to think about it. But it is also you can exert conscious control over it. So with that as a template, we can when we start to exert conscious control over something that is generally unconscious, you start to provide a window into other aspects of what is unconscious. So that at a physiological level, you can you can do you can you know observe much more in your body than before at a you know at a, at a psychological level you would start to um, notice again you know your conditioning your patterns mm -hmm. things like this so pranayama it, it it's most often done in a seated posture in seated postures after a practice of asanas and uh, you know, there's many different sorts of ways of changing the breath. One one aspect which I have um, I'm particularly fond of because it's kind of esoteric is uh, the practice of what's called swara yoga. And swara yoga is is the observation of the side of the nose that the breath is flowing through, and further to that, the space within the nostril of the side that the breath is flowing through. And this is considered to have great, great importance. So within a 48 to 60 minute window, the breath will be flowing on, on one nostril. For about 12 to 16 minutes, it will be flowing in the middle. And then again on the opposite side for about 48 to 60 minutes. Within that range of, of 48 to 60 minutes, the breath will flow within fi uh, five primary positions, which is said to represent the five elements. And, um, and wow, so if you look back in these medieval texts, they say you can predict the sex of your baby and you can know the time of your death and you can, you can decide like whether it's an auspicious time to buy jewelry or return home or strike an enemy. And, um, 
but in a modern sense, I would, I use this all the time as like whether I, my body's prepared to eat or have sex or sleep. And, um, pranayama is a very vast topic. It's, I, I, what I say to my students, and I believe this is true, that it truly, truly is the gateway to higher yoga. And by yoga, I mean expanded consciousness. It is the gateway, the step before meditation and the doorway with which with our practice begins to really, truly deepen. I remember that you said that to me before, and I've definitely found that to be the case through over time, just practices that I've learned from you, my teacher training, um, learned a lot from Simon Borg-Olivier, and I find it absolutely integral yeah. to my meditation and my asana practice. Um, on days when I notice a difference, on days when I, I skip it, right? Maybe I feel my time short, you know, so I don't have time to do it versus days when I take the time to do it. And, um, it just makes all the difference. You know, I just drop in so much. I, I maybe spend, you know, the, the extra time doing it, even if it's just 10 minutes, but I drop in so much deeper in my meditation when I actually yeah. do that practice. Nice. Can you share a little bit to some of our listeners? And let's think about people who are, maybe they don't practice yoga at all. They've maybe just got into mindfulness and they're doing on their Calm or Headspace app. What is the one really simple pranayama technique that you would recommend? Hmm. This gets challenging when, when you're addressing people who it's hard to see. Pranayama is kind of notoriously hard to, hard to teach because there's oftentimes people's um, habits of breathing can be not so efficient for example using neck muscles to inhale and you can observe that if you're if you're taking an inhalation and the neck tightens chronically um, that's that's fairly common or other ones where people may be pulling their abdomen back towards the spine when they're inhaling which is a conditioned fear response so some of the so I would so without knowing who uh, the, the person is, I would say, begin by, you know, exploring what it is to take a, a, a long, slow inhalation and to do so by emphasizing the expansion of the upper body and the ribs. Um, following that, I think a fun one is to check out are you breathing through the left nostril or are you breathing more through the right most people can't tell so um you can uh, take your index finger you can wet it with your tongue if you want stick it under your nose and then you know exhale more and you'll just feel which side is more full the advice is that eat when the breath is flowing on the right side not on the left and um, and and if and if you and if your breath switches to the left while eating you're done uh, another one um, uh, if men have sex when the breath is flowing on the right women should have sex when it's flowing on the left never in the opposite I don't actually believe that necessarily to be absolutely true but um, there's something to it I will go that far um, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Simply paying attention to your breath and, and deepening it is the, is the gateway in. And, you know, like everything, we're busy. So um, a minute, one minute is better than no minutes. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? So moving on to, to meditation, what do you see as you know, in this era where mindfulness is just the new buzzword and is kind of exploding. What do you see, whether it's in terms of students who walk into your class, maybe it's workshops when you're more in the, U in the West, the U.S. or Europe, um, or just on social media, what are the big misconceptions that you see from, and hear from people about meditation? 
that is hard, I guess. I haven't really. Well, I don't know. What do you, do you do? You catch any particular misconceptions that occur to you? I haven't heard. The one I hear a lot is meditation is stopping thoughts. It means I'm not thinking at all. That's the big oh. misconception, as opposed to just being present with whatever is arising. Mm. Right. And of course, different traditions have different spins and different ways of working with this. But I think pretty universally, I would say, like, look, the mind is not going to stop thinking. Yeah. You're going to enjoy longer spaces between thoughts, much longer mm. spaces with continued practice. But. You know, I think it's Jack, one line Jack Cornfield says a lot is, you know, your mind secretes thoughts like your body secretes enzymes or like your pancreas secretes enzymes. It's just, that's what it does, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that's the big one I hear. I was just curious if you encountered that at all. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe I live in a, oh, I live in Thailand, you know, there's a, it, maybe yeah, maybe no one's objected so far to it. It doesn't seem that outlandish here. So I think that's why I immediately rephrased it. I was like, if you're re-teaching workshops abroad, because I think in Thailand most people do get at least the basics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I haven't. I don't recall getting any direct, uh, direct mis as I understand misunderstanding. I think perhaps you know the stopping thoughts thing. I I don't know. No, I don't. It, it it could it could come out of the you know the the classic definition of yoga from the Yoga Sutra, which is Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, which is the Sanskrit trans Sanskrit. What that means is uh, the state of yoga is the cessation of the of the thought process. I mean, we could talk about what that's translated as in a lot of and there's different definitions or ways to translate that, but one simple one is that the yeah cessation of thought, and without thought, then you're in a state of yoga. So, um, yeah, no, no particular, nothing that's made me stop anybody in their tracks. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good to know. One thing I know you've shared with me before is that uh, TM transcendental meditation is part of your practice is that correct yeah it's the it's the type of meditation that i i find the most uh how the one that i i resonated with the most can you i've had several friends actually who are they know i practice meditation so they're starting to get interested and they ask they're specifically about tm um do you Mm -hmm. mind sharing a little bit about what that is for people who don't know and why it's resonated with you. Yeah, you know, um, it, they. I think they've done a push lately with their, <laughs> with their, their business drive. So I think that's why it, you know it's it's popping up on the landscape. Um, and then I've referred people to their information seminars, and and uh, a couple people told me that they didn't like the presentation so much and they found it a bit, um, I don't know. I, I don't, maybe, maybe it sounded a bit culty to them or something for me. Not at all. It TM, uh, which stands for transcendental meditation is a, was popularized in the West by a teacher named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who's now dead. And he, you know, he was the, he was a major part of the countercultural scene culture of the late sixties and early seventies. The Beatles went to his ashram, uh, uh, wrote the song sexy Sadie, which was, uh, and I think, um, what's the song? Jaya Guru Deva. Uh, it's, it's about him. Um, it, what it is 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 using a short monosyllabic phrase or word, uh, a mantra that is called in Sanskrit it's called a bija mantra. Bija means seed, and the seed mantra is given to the uh, initiate in a ceremony, 
and it's selected for that person. I'm not sure how, I think maybe based on the birthday, but um, so a seed mantra would be something like shreem, hreem, cream, cling, things like this. And these, these mantras don't have any actual uh, semantic meaning, but they are said to, and this, you know, this may be a leap of faith for some people, they're said to create a energetic signature right? Much in the same way that if I was to say, you know, to myself, I hate my life, I hate my life, I hate my life, that could create a kind of energetic signature. Now, um, both, one of them has more meaning, but both of them have an effect. And the practices of TM uh, involves sitting, closing one's eyes, introducing this uh, seed mantra and allowing the mind to simply repeat it over and over and over and over and over again, allowing it to change, allowing it to distort, get louder, softer, disappear for about 20 minutes. That practice is known as uh, uh, concentration or in yoga is called dharana. When the mind sustains concentration for a period of time, then it, the, there's a, a, a unique quality which is generated, which is called dhyan or meditation. So when meditation is sustained for a while, the mind has an opportunity, the conscious mind has an opportunity to loosen its grip and slip into a state of absorption or trance or what's called samadhi. In certain parlance, the definition of yoga, and this is not across the board, but for some schools of yoga, yoga equals samadhi. So the state of yoga, the state of union with supreme consciousness is what the practices of meditation would lead one towards. I, I found it to be very effective, um, and the framework within the system of transcendental meditation seems to map very well with the existing kind of epistemology that I use around, which is primarily Vedic, tantric, and yogic. Um, so it it works for me. I find it effective, and it makes me happy. Can you say a little more about that? Around how does it map with those Vedic and tantric? Yeah. Systems. I mean, well, I, I can imagine a bit what you mean, knowing a bit about the Vedas and the Tantra, but if you could explain that a little bit for our listeners as well who might not be familiar. These are massive topics, of course. Um, Bija mantras typically reside within the scope of what is called Tantra. Um, there are, there's another. There's another, well, let's say that Indian philosophy in in general or in, in mass is, is primarily based on Vedic knowledge or Vedic culture. And so there are Vedic mantras and tantric mantras, and Vedic mantras have a different uh, character to them, um, which I also study. So... The way Maharishi explains the how meditation goes is that, uh, and and perhaps I'm not you know because I'm not a teacher of TM uh, and so I may be overstepping my uh, my interpretation. So whoever's into TM out there, was, you know, forgive me in advance, but. He, as as I understand it, uh, Maharishi describes that the, there's that when we transcend the individual mind, we're taken into a, a a sea of consciousness, which is called Veda, and Veda is is the is the repository of all knowledge. So, uh, 
the a lot of the teachings come uh, a lot of the teachings within that system are Vedic and they also refer to they, they, they place yoga as a system a philosophical system within a set of six different systems which are all Vedic so yoga Nyaya, uh, was it yoga, Samkhya, Nyaya, Visheshika, and uh, oh, Vedanta, and what's the last one? I'm forgetting right now. So it it they have the, within their system a lot of texts that kind of um, support the epistemology. It's different than Buddhism. Let's put it that way. Right, for sure. Yeah, that's, this is something I wanted to, to sort of dig into with you because I've only just in the last year really started practicing mantra. And that was introduced to me by Richard Freeman, one of my yoga teachers. And when he first started, you know, we first started doing chantings, I found myself, you know, very resistant because... Um, I, there's, I had an aversion to anything that I saw as too much involved with organized religion, right? I kind of had this identity around I'm an atheist, you know, sort of Buddhism was fine because it's agnostic or atheist, but um, anything that involved too much of the trappings of a religion, so talking about Hindu deities, which he was doing, and chanting was just kind of too much for me, but I came to appreciate that there is a science to mantra and there is, and also the mythology and the deities as well are sort of esoteric maps that are about bringing you, inviting you into a state of meditation. And I've, I've come to think of meditation from as a, from a design perspective, you know, like it's as a teacher, I did some design thinking workshops, which shifted the way that I viewed about my role. Instead of being a producer of knowledge that students consumed, I was a designer of a learning experience where I arranged a particular set of circumstances in which, you know, an autonomous individual could hopefully, you know, flourish. And, and optimize their opportunity to learn in that situation. And I've come to view things like mantra and meditating on a deity as, or a yantra, right, the geometric form, as this design, design experience that can bring you into that state of concentration and then into mm. samadhi. Um, mm. But I want to dig into that with you because I know you also share a healthy skepticism and have your fair share of issues with organized religion. So I'm wondering for some of our listeners who are in that category, how can we let them know there is, there is a certain science and rationalism in chanting these Sanskrit chants. Though culturally specific, there is a very scientific approach. And I'm wondering if you found that and if so, how you could articulate that to a more secular audience. Well, to, to, to address your, your statement about the design aspect of, of, um, you know, creating experiences or, or having, um, funnels for a person for a person's mind stuff to go through and, and kind of take shape on the other side. Um, language, language is a, is a filter, which does, which does this, you know, the, um, and so is belief. Uh, you know, it, it takes, it takes, it takes a, a mind stuff and it, you know, it sends it through a kind of a filter and comes out the other side. Uh, with a different sort of coloring around it. Now, when you talk about science, well, it's a, you know it's arguable about whether anything is objective. But um, let's say that there's an objective science and a subjective science, and and 
what we can say yoga is um, with all its vast number of practices, including mantra and meditation and pranayama and asanas and um, that we're, we're using techniques on the body, on the mind and on the emotions because that's the field of our experience. So let's say that, you know, you could, you could make up a lot of different stories around that and it may be more effective in some way to believe certain things and then rather than not believing them because you tend to get more, you know, exaggerated results if you believe in it. Um, so like going back to that example, let's say like from just, a. Uh, a yoking of the mind to a particular idea or the yoking of the emotions to a particular framework or concept. If I'm, if let's say that uh, I'm thinking to myself thoughts which are limited and perhaps negative and, and I, my language starts to reflect that and I start to use identity statements like I am this type of person I, and I am stressed out or I am depressed or I hate my life or whatever those things are, these are kind of in a way mantra, right? And, and there's another thought process one can begin to evoke where one trains oneself to concepts which are positive, universal and transcendental and to and so because we have five senses we can we can employ different roots within sound is one way to train the auditory yeah uh, the sense of sight can be trained through visualization whether that's a ge geometric form or a more elaborate form such as a painting of a of some kind of god form, deity form, goddess form. These yoke our minds to better concepts. So let's say that I spend part of my day considering positive ideas. Now, you know, I go into that space, I come back out, I have my problems, but then I go back into that space, I come back out, and that gap of time where I'm considering positive ideas and transcendental ideas over time begins to shape and change overall my experience. That's one, that's one way of looking at it. Another way I think would be useful to look at is in the, from the point of view of energy. Now, um, in, so you had mentioned the word yantra. Yantra, for those of you who don't know, is a, is is a it's like a mandala. That's a more common word, or a geometric shape. And if um, there's this device, I'm not remembering the name right now. If you, it basically has sand on it, and you and you pipe sound into this plate full of sand, and the sound begin to reverberate the, the, the sand into a certain pattern, which reflects the, that shape of sound. Yeah. Um, so we can consider our entire body, mind and emotions as being a certain shape. And when we channel energy through that shape, we get certain results or our behaviors are shaped to reflect the mind and the emotions. And, um, when we go out into the world, then people respond to that vibration or and our behaviors and our general, what, our vibe. So mantra is thought to be a kind of a higher vibration that, uh, that when we shake our cells and attune them to a different vibration that it changes our experience, our consciousness. So is that true? You know, do I believe that? I'm not sure. You know, I can't, I can't prove that, but I, I do know that subjectively speaking, it really does help to 
turn my mind in a positive direction once at least uh, you know at least once a day for 20 minutes right i practice a lot of mantra i have a vedic teacher who for some reason he's decided to teach me and um which is unusual and so mantra is very much a part of my practice i have about 40 minutes of mantras i do every day wow that is that's a committed practice and it's how wonderful that is wonderful and then are you doing an is that it basically does mant mantra is your meditation or are you then sitting silently for another 10 to 20 minutes after that or basically mantra is your meditation practice it's i do both um there's a he he teaches me something called puja which is a which right. is a form of uh, deity worship and and again it's not like i i don't believe that there's these figures somewhere in heavens and you know guiding my life but i look at them symbolically so i do a puja um where i chant i visualize and i also engage in in meditation which is overall a longer sequence is about 40 minutes long including pranayama i've just started doing puja and um it, you know Sure, I barely know what I'm doing, but uh, it's definitely extending the amount of time that I'm I'm meditating along with all the mantras that I'm learning. But right, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, all of a sudden now I'm going from 20 minutes to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, no problem. But Careful, you, would, you you will be unemployable soon. Yes, so. <laughs> oh, mm. right on the way there. Just doing the podcast and meditating, pretty much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Both of which pay great, um, but. I, I think there are, I want to build on a couple ideas you said, because I think there is something, there are a couple of things very tangible about mantra that we could kind of pin down. And one is that it's about the power of language, right? To build on your point. And I'm thinking of a teaching that I've learned recently um, of the matrika shakti, right? The shakti, the power of language and it's the power of language in the mind that leads us astray or leads us at least out of the present moment, right? That's what thought does when we're thinking right. pretty much either in the past or we're in the future, but we're anywhere but what's happening right now. And when you begin to focus on that vibration, um, in your field of awareness and you really begin to subtly observe how letters string together to form words and words string together to form a thoughts and how those start to form a story. You yeah. begin to see the power of how the mind takes you out of that present. And that's precisely why you need a mantra. You use the, that which there's a saying that which, Wait, what is it? That by which we fall is that by which we rise, right? So it's using the power of the very tool that is leading you away to actually break the process itself. We that's need a, language. That's very well put. Yeah, that makes, yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something well, about Sanskrit as well that has that vibratory quality. You know, it's, it, it has a power to it that chanting English does not. It seems to, yeah, and I, I like to let the and besides, you know, singing singing affects the vagus nerve, and and that's part of the that's part of the uh, you know uh, parasympathetic nervous system, which is very relaxing. Singing's good for you, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. right. well, Adrian, I'm I'm mindful of your time and our time here together, but I want to make sure before we close that you have an opportunity to just let folks know about, you know, where they can find you and if you have any upcoming workshops or trainings that you'd like to promote. Sure. I'm mostly based in Bangkok, although I do a lot of teaching in China and Australia, Prague, Myanmar, 
I'm, uh, I'm expanding now filming stuff for online usage, which will be on yogaelements.com. And so, yeah, so if you happen to be passing through 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 Bangkok, or if you want to look me up on on the web, that that's the that's the place. Actually, um, <laughs> add me on Facebook. That's probably <laughs> that's probably the uh, easiest way to see what I'm up to. Isn't that true for most everybody? Sadly, totally is. And is that just Adrian Bake or Adrian Cox, or is that <laughs> I know <laughs> now mixing this up? Can't even remember which is which. Is that Adrian Cox, or should they add Yoga Elements to the studio? I think Adrian Cox. Yeah, that's the. Uh, I, I, you know, I can never tell if I am, if I am the studio or if the studio or if I'm separate from the studio. I've been doing it for so long that I think I need to <laughs> think I need to find an independent identity. If you, you know, it's like if you have a business, it becomes kind of all you all you think about or do. So, anyways, but uh, yeah. So, and I look forward to making new friends. So let's have at it. Absolutely. And Adrian, I'm, I'm very aware we've only scratched the surface of a number of topics that I would love to delve into together. So hopefully we'll have a chance to, to talk again about some of the many other common interests we share. That's great, Adrian. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time. This concludes our first episode of the Hacking Consciousness podcast. I'd like to thank you for your curiosity and for listening. In the coming weeks, I'll be building up the resources around the Hacking Consciousness project, the website, the podcast, and the various social media profiles. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping to promote the conversations that we're trying to have here on the podcast. Moreover, please visit the website if you're interested in these topics, hackingconsciousness.org, and you can follow the blog through WordPress. You can also follow the project through social media. So the Facebook page is simply the same title as the show, Hacking Consciousness, and the Twitter and Instagram handles are the same and have to be a bit shortened because of limits on those platforms. So it's Hacking, H-A-C-K-I-N, so no G, Hacking Conscious, so H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S, Hacking Conscious are the handles on Instagram and Twitter. Please leave a post or send a message to any of those social media platforms or on the website if you enjoyed the episode, if you have constructive criticism, or if you have any suggestions for guests. I hope to connect with many of you in the coming weeks and months. We should be releasing our next episode soon. The goal will be to release around one episode a week. Until then, take care.